Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. And this is my interview with the writer and director for The Trial of the Chicago 7, Aaron Sorkin. And Dan Baer's interview with one of the actors from the acclaimed ensemble, Academy Award-nominated actor, Frank Langella. You know why you're on trial here? The whole watching! The whole watching! You alright? That was until I saw that. All right, everybody, you are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. I'm your host, Matt Neglia. And joining me today is the Academy Award-winning screenwriter for films that I'm sure you have heard of, including The Social Network, A Few Good Men, Steve Jobs, Moneyball. He has directed Molly's Game, and now he is directing The Trial of the Chicago 7. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Aaron Sorkin. Hello, how are you? I'm great, Aaron. I'm really, really great. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with me today to talk about your latest film. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. So you wrote this script in 2007. There have been numerous directors attached to this. Paul Greengrass, Steven Spielberg. And you finally decided that it was time for you to be the one to uh, direct this film. And it's kind of amazing the overall timing of the release uh, in terms of what is going on in the world politically, socially today. Can you talk about um, your decision to ultimately direct this film following Molly's Game and just maybe a little bit of like reflection on everything that has just happened, especially over the last year? Sure. Um, Well, let me start here. I started writing uh, the screenplay in 2006. I finished writing the screenplay uh, about a year ago. Wow. <laughs> uh, I, I, I did 20, 30 drafts. I just kept writing it and kept writing it. Uh, screenplays are, are never really finished. They're, they're confiscated. Uh, yeah. Someone just says, you're done, pencils down. Uh, and when I, in, in, it was in 2006, uh, on a Saturday morning, Steven Spielberg asked me to come to his house, which I should point out is, not common. I don't hang out with Steven Spielberg. <laughs> um, uh, and he said, uh, I, 
I, I want to do a movie about the Chicago 7. And I said, that's great. Count me in. And I left his house, and I called my father and asked him who the Chicago 7 were. Uh, I knew nothing. I, I was just saying yes to Steven Spielberg the way literally any writer would. Of course. Uh, so I had a lot of research to do, and uh, there are uh, a dozen or so good books on the subject, some of them written by the defendants. There's a 21,000-page trial transcript. But most critically, I got to spend time with Tom Hayden, who was still alive uh, back then. He passed away mm. four years ago. Yeah. So uh, I, I kept writing, and as he said, it, it, the, the script went uh, from director uh, uh, to director. And the, the problem always boiled down to uh, the riots. Uh, uh, the two riot sequences were just budget busters. The, yeah. A film like this has to fit into a budget that is proportional to what a studio thinks the appetite for the film is going to be. In other words, we weren't going to have a lot of money uh, mm -hmm. uh, to do the movie. And there were these two uh, riot sequences. Then Donald Trump was elected president. Uh, and at his rallies, there'd be a protester and Trump would get nostalgic about the good old days when they'd carry that guy out of here on a stretcher. And I'd like to beat the crap out of him and punch him in the face. And Stephen felt the time to make this movie was now. And by then I had directed Molly's Game and Stephen was sufficiently pleased with it that uh, he thought I should direct Chicago 7. And now the riots are your problem, he said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care how you do it, just figure it out. Um, so I, I, I didn't choose myself to direct the film. Stephen uh, uh, had to anoint me. As the director. And, and when Steven Spielberg says for you to do something, you naturally say yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> of course. Yes, you do. I, I've never met anyone uh, who has said no. Sure. So with the help uh, of our DP, Faden Papa Michael, and our editor, uh, Alan Baumgarten, and hours and hours and hours of news footage, archival footage uh, of the riots, and the fact that we were able to shoot in Chicago, in Grant Park, and on Michigan Avenue, where the riots actually took place, meant that we could design sequences. Basically, my idea for how we were going to uh, uh, fit these riots into the budget uh, was that I was going to get a lot of very, very tight shots, uh, eyes right before Billy Club uh, uh, smashed into him. You know, blood, a tear gas canister being uh, loaded, that kind of thing. Very tight shots. A few wide shots where because of the smoke from the tear gas uh, and the way we would light it, we would be able to give the appearance of a lot more people being there uh, uh, than were actually there. And, um, and we've, we've that uh, with archival footage that we would be able to make these scenes be what we want them to be. Yeah. Uh, Any time that you are that you're making a choice uh, out of a budgetary necessity, you want it to end up looking like that's what you would have done if you'd had an unlimited budget. Uh, and I, and I think we at, at least came very close uh, uh, to doing that. Uh, and uh, another big player in the success of those two sequences is Daniel Pemberton, uh, our composer. Yeah. Uh, I, I asked him to write 
little mini symphonies uh, for those two sequences, and he did. Nice. That's fantastic. Uh, you were mentioning before that, you know, the film takes on many life forms uh, from writing to shooting to editing, and it can just take shape continuously uh, throughout the process. Is there ever room to improvise on set with the actors when you're juggling so much and things are always changing? Because it's one thing to hand over your material as a writer to a director, but now you're in charge of directing uh, your own material. So mm -hmm. do you already have always have like a preconceived idea of what the film is going to look like, you know, in terms of self-editing, if you will? I do uh, have a preconceived idea of what the film is going to look like, even if it doesn't end up being that. Uh, <laughs> even if it ends up, I can give you an example uh, uh, in a moment. of the, It's the end of the film. Uh, where yeah. I had a preconceived idea and it wasn't what we did. Interesting. Uh, as far as improvisation, it it doesn't happen. Uh, and it's not because I'm precious about my own words. Uh, it's because there are writers and directors who are virtuosos at carving out space for very talented improvisers to improvise. Uh, and uh, and the writer and the director, they, they want it to sound like that. They want it to sound messy, um, and they want what those actors can give them uh, uh, when they're improvising. Mm -hmm. And I have, as an audience member, nothing but admiration uh, for that. Um, if, just in the style that I write, mm -hmm. if you were to suddenly start to ad-lib, sound weird, it, it would just sounds like you were in a different movie. Uh, so the actors don't do it. They don't seem inclined to do it. They don't, they're not chafing uh, at, a, at a collar to, uh, uh, to want to do it. As far as the preconceived notion and then something changing, uh, I always had in mind, in fact, it's scripted, uh, that for the end and... Um, how are we with spoilers? Oh, we're, we're, we're pretty good. I'm sure everyone's going to have seen the movie by this okay. point. When Hayden starts reading the names, it was going to be the only time in the film that I used source music. Uh, one of the things I, I, I wanted going in, I, I always wanted the movie to be about today and not 1968, uh, even before I knew just how much about today it was going to become. Um, uh, just the, the, chilling relevancy suddenly uh, that the movie had. I always wanted it to be about today and not about 1968. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I told everyone, we're just not going to lean into the iconography of 1968. We're not going to flood the frame with peace signs and tie-dye and, and a psychedelic uh, aesthetic. And we are not going to use the usual 60s protest songbook uh, in the film. Uh, a movie called The Trial of the Chicago Seven, you kind of go into it already in your head. You're hearing Sympathy for the Devil and Fortunate Son, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and that we weren't going to do that. It was going to be a film score, an original orchestral uh, film score. But at the end, when Hayden starts reading the names, it was going to be Here Comes the Sun, oh. uh, a cover uh, of Here Comes the Sun. And we were all going to feel great. He was going to start reading these names. And here comes the sun. It's been a long, cold, lonely winter. The clouds are parting. Uh, and, uh, and it was going to work, and everything was going to be great. And we did it. We were in the editing room, and we did it, and it didn't work at all. Uh, mm. It just didn't work at all. 
you didn't feel anything. Uh, and that's when you want to die. Uh, <laughs> uh, when you just, holy cow. Um, we got to the end of the movie and it didn't work. <laughs> uh, nothing worked. Like everything, every scene was good up until now and it just didn't work. And remember, using Here Comes the Sun was, was an idea that had been around for a long time for me. It was, yeah. I literally typed in the script. I said it to everybody. I'd warned our composer, Daniel Pemberton, in advance, you're not going to be able to write the final cue, which composers always you know, want to be able to write the final cue, because sure. um, uh, I'm going to use this. And I went home from the editing room, called Daniel in London, um, and told him what had happened, uh, and said, so you need to write something better than the Beatles. It's <laughs> ending. It's going to be an orchestral cue now. Um, and uh, like I said, you need to top John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And he did. Uh, he, he wrote this magnificent cue. Um, uh, he, he fills the courtroom with, with tension as the defendants are let in. Now they're in their prison garb. Uh, uh, they've obviously been found guilty. And in the moment when Hayden has had enough uh, and wants to show his disrespect to the court um, uh, and honor these people, he has the cue. It just blossoms into this beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah, I agree. It's such an uplifting moment and a great way to end the movie on that sends uh, the crowd home with a smile on their face, despite you know some of the heavy issues that the film does tackle so mission accomplished as far as i'm concerned thanks and uh again uh that that's daniel gets the the mvp for that what was the hardest scene for you to write considering the transcripts the source material like you mentioned before and then what was the most rewarding scene to see fully realized on screen as both a writer and director so that's an interesting question um i'm not sure what the the, the hardest scene was to write uh, but I'll, uh, l let's talk about the, the rewarding scene to see sure. it, uh, uh, come alive. I would say the scene with Bobby mm -hmm. uh, in the jail cell when Kunstler and Hayden come to tell him that uh, Fred Hampton's been killed. Uh, that scene, uh, Yaya's performance, Eddie's performance, Mark's performance, it's fantastic. Yeah. Abby on the stand. I was, pr you know, I was nervous about that scene. Uh, I think a number of people were. Uh, we were only three weeks into shooting, uh, roughly, and the first two weeks had been almost entirely marching down the street, the riot sequences, things like that. So we hadn't done a, a scene scene uh, mm -hmm. yet. Uh, and I can't remember why, because of scheduling, uh, uh, we were doing, we, you know, we, we went into the courtroom for five weeks and for some reason we were doing that scene which is the, the second to last scene in the courtroom early in the sequence and I can't remember why <laughs> uh, but uh, we were we were nervous uh, uh, you know is Sasha a wild card what 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 are we going to get mm -hmm. um, and what we got is what you saw nice I uh, and uh, it was an incredibly gratifying day on the set good that's great uh, what was the biggest lesson that you learned from working on Molly's game that you took with you into making the trial of the Chicago seven? And what new lesson did you learn in the making of this movie that you will take into your next film? 
You know, I would say that, uh, honestly, that the biggest lessons I'm learning are what I don't know. Mm. And I'm, I'm really eager to, I'm really eager to learn. I'm, I'm really eager to get better at those things. I, I, I can look at Chicago seven and see frames that, uh, can be more interestingly composed, um, mm-hmm. uh, where I just, it, it, there, there's just a moment of amateurism, uh, in there. Uh, it comes from years and years and years of not paying attention to what anything looked like, just what it sounded like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I certainly want to get better in that regard. Uh, the lesson that I took from Molly's game to Chicago 7 was don't ever give up on a take. Um, uh, there were too many times, uh, by too many times, I mean four or five times, uh, in Molly's game where uh, I do six, seven, uh, eight takes and think, uh, okay, that's as good as it's going to get. Uh, let's move on. Uh, and uh, I don't do that anymore. Okay. All right. Borrowing a, a certain cue from your friend David Fincher, I suppose. <laughs> well, now. <laughs> I have to ask this as an aside question. If, uh, if David Fincher called you up tomorrow and said, we need to continue the story of Mark Zuckerberg, would you do it? Oh, my God. Yes. Um, uh, I, yes. That, that fills me with such joy. <laughs> uh, first of all, if David Fincher called me tomorrow and said, we need to do anything, uh, I, I'd do it. Um, nice. But absolutely uh, continuing the, the story of Facebook and Facebook in 2020 as opposed to 2005 uh, is something I would love to do with David. Uh, but in terms of the number of takes, David is in a is in the luxurious position of being David Fincher. Yeah. Um, uh, so he gets, uh, uh, you know, he gets a David Fincher uh, shooting schedule. The first scene in in the Social Network, the scene between Jesse and Rooney, uh, mm-hmm. which is just two people sitting at a table in a bar. It couldn't be less complicated uh, in terms of shooting. We did 99 takes yeah. over two nights mm-hmm. uh, of that scene. We begged him to just do one more so we could say it was 100. And they said, no, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even sure there was film in the camera for the first 50. <laughs> My God, amazing. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show 
and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Uh, you know, you're mentioning about like uh, the the past and today and comparing uh, how things change over time in regards to Facebook. As, as the writer of uh, The American President, The West Wing, how do you feel about just the current state of American politics today and what we're going through as a country? Because I mentioned at the top here that Charles Chicago 7 touches upon so many themes that we as a country have felt all throughout 2020. And do you view it as something where you feel that through your gifts as a storyteller, you can enact really great change? No, I wouldn't presume... I guess let me let, let me say this. Sure. Uh, before a movie or a play or an episode of television. Yeah. Before it can be anything else. Before it can be uh, relevant or persuasive or provocative. Mm-hmm. Before it can be anything else. It has to be good. Uh, it, it, it has to work as something that you watch with a bowl of popcorn in your lap. Yeah. Uh, and that's not a modest goal. That's, uh, uh, that, that's a high bar to clear. And my, my goals aren't any loftier than that, uh, uh, to just to captivate you for however long I've asked for your attention. Yeah. Sometimes because of what you're writing about, it does provoke a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, you never know, uh, maybe even little bits of good uh, uh, come from it. You know, uh, I'll hear from time to time about people who uh, went into public service because when they were in high school, they watched The West Wing, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's always incredibly gratifying. But that, that, <laughs> that said, I do believe that there that the most powerful delivery system for an idea ever invented is a story so i storytellers do have you know we have some responsibility yeah definitely and final question yes sir after having directed two films now uh between writing and directing is there one that you favor over the other and will you be looking to direct more in the future I will, first of all, I am not done wanting to work with great directors. You mentioned Fincher. Uh, uh, he's one, and, uh, and there are others. The reason why I think writing is the hardest of them all, mm. uh, because at least when you're directing, uh, when you come to work in the morning, there's an instruction book in front of you, right? There's a script. Yeah. It's, it's, You've started already. There's something there. When you're writing, when you're staring at a blank page, a blank screen with that cursor, that stupid cursor blinking uh, in your face, and there's nothing, there's just whiteness, there's just blankness, um, that's, that's harder. Yeah. I can, I can imagine it could be a very intimidating and lonely process. Uh, it is, but um, it when you... Uh, for me, writer's block is kind of my default position. Uh, I don't have writer's block. I have, I, I have periods of brief bursts of being able to, to write something. And in those moments, it's all worth it. Well, 
I definitely think the Trial of the Chicago 7 was an endeavor that proved to be worth it. It is currently streaming right now on Netflix. And we really, really appreciate having you here today, Aaron, and talking about the film with us. I can't thank you enough. It's my pleasure. Thanks very much. Absolutely. You have a nice day. You too. These rebels without a job. They're a threat to national security. It's revolution. We may have to hurt somebody's feelings. When you came to Chicago, were you hoping to draw the police into a confrontation? I'm concerned you have to think about it. Give me a moment, would you, friend? I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Next Best Picture podcast. My name is Daniel Bayer, and we are talking with the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Frank Langella. Sir, how are you doing today? I'm very well. I'm up in New York State, north uh, upstate uh, New York, and there's still snow on the ground here from the last storm. And it's beautiful. Fantastic. I will say I miss that snow in the country living in Manhattan myself. (laughs) But it creates a really nice atmosphere during the winter. We are here to talk today about your performance mainly in The Trial of the Chicago 7. You play Judge Julius Hoffman, who is the sort of the big antagonist of the film. Um, And this is a huge, huge cast. a lot of incredibly talented, well-known actors, Eddie Redmayne, Mark Rylance, Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, and you are spending most of the film behind the judge's bench, looking disdainfully down on all of these people in your courtroom. Um, and I was wondering, what was the mood like on set with the other actors um how quote unquote method did you get in terms of your interactions with them uh outside of the filming of scenes well we didn't we one or two actors in the ensemble stayed in character all Mm. the time and that was fine but most of the time there was a great camaraderie and in between scenes you know, the young guys would come up and talk to me about their families, and I'd look at pictures of their kids, or they'd say they'd seen something. You know, Aaron said he saw me in Dracula when he was seven years old. Oh, wow. You know, that's very, very sobering. But it, though, it, I wouldn't call it, we all meant it when we did it. Absolutely, mm. everybody was on the same page. But in between, we knew we were acting and we knew that uh, we had to know our lines and mean them. So I had originally planned to stay away from them and let them really hate me from afar and get to know them at the end. But uh, I couldn't. I watched them the first day and I really wanted to know them as, as men. So I introduced myself to all of them and we had a great rapport, really great. That's fantastic. That's great to hear. And it's a unique situation, I think, in a bit because Aaron Sorkin, uh, directing the film, also wrote the film. What was it like having a writer direct his own script? What, what was that mood like on set with him? Wonderful. I've, I've worked with a couple of um, playwrights 
who directed. Most of them are gone now. Mm. And sometimes the, a, a writer will will just not be happy unless it's exactly the button he hit and the dead hand. But with Aaron's material, all you have to do is learn it and uh, do it as he wrote it. You don't need to make up for something that's a little, maybe a little weak or a little, do you think I could try this? It might be stronger. Um, Aaron really gives it to you completely. And he also is very present uh, when you want to talk about something in which the director is required. He's very good. I don't know how he did it, but he wrangled all of us, there were some 14 mm-hmm. people there in the courtroom every day. And he always had a minute for you. If you wanted to ask him a question, he turned, walked over, and was yours completely. You know, never was, and I don't know how you do that, but because it, it wasn't just actors. You know, the costume lady would come up, or the lighting, or the cameraman, or any any number of things you have to do when you're a director. But I think Aaron mm. loves that. I really do. I think he's very extraordinarily able to handle a lot of things and enjoys doing it. Yeah, and it is a large ensemble, even if for most of the film you're sort of packed into one set. You're right, his dialogue is so sharp and deep and dense. Um, but, you know, you're working with, a again, this cast, including people like like Sasha Baron Cohen, who is a notorious improviser, um, and some very, very comedically sharp people in this cast. Um, was there ever a moment where, as, you know, this very haughty, imperious, antagonistic judge where you had to really bite your tongue because either the dialogue or something they improvised was so sharply funny? Um, No, there wasn't that kind of moment, but Mm. there was one where I I said something very imperious, got up, hit the gavel, and walked out. And it was a very important exit, and the door wouldn't open. Oh, no. So I I just... I just kept kicking it and kicking it and kicking it, and Aaron didn't cut. So finally, I pushed it so hard that I fell through it and cut my hand. Oh, no. So I'm sure that was funny to other people. But I, in, in retrospect, I should have turned around and said, and another thing, you know, <laughs> but I didn't at the time. I was determined to get out of that door at all costs. <laughs> but no, nothing ever Nothing cracked me up because I was so utterly and completely uh, um, committed to this prick, this <laughs> son of a bitch. Yes. Mean, 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 mean man. Yeah, he is. He. Ugh, it, it is a very memorable character, and because, in part of how. How much of a prick he is! You're you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, and when I, I'm wondering because this is sort of the it's 1968, it's the very beginning of the Nixon era, and he plays a very sort of off-screen, very tertiary 
um, role in the proceedings. And of course, one of your most famous performances is as Richard Nixon in Frost Nixon. Was he on your mind at all when you were filming this or preparing for this at all? No, not not in the least. Nixon was another kind of prick. Um, and uh, and I don't think um, quite as unrelentingly mean. Uh, Nixon was very complicated. He could be really mean, but yeah. he was a million other things, too. He was very um, conscious of his daughters and his family. And there were things to do with Nixon that were offbeat, alone in a room, uh, playing the piano. Uh, Hoffman was, as Aaron created him, a mean son of a bitch in every moment he was on camera. If Aaron had decided he wanted people to see uh, the judge at home, uh, you know, with his grandchildren sitting on his lap, and he'd written that, I would have played what was required, but he didn't. And um, there was a report about this film I saw somewhere recently that said we're going to list the 10 things that are right and the 10 things that are wrong. (laughs) And I was happy to say that um, by their remembrances and their research, I was playing the judge exactly the way he was purported to be. And and it's, it's somewhat shocking when you, when you go back and read the transcripts of the trial, which are available for, anyone in the public to read it he didn't exaggerate very much aaron sorkin in the writing of this character it's he didn't have to i i loved it from when i sat down and i got to the page where the judge comes in it said the judge is entering it's not altogether certain whether or not he's crazy whether or not he's beginning the early dementia Hmm. or whether he's a puppet of the administration, but probably all three. And that was really (laughs) all I had to do was just follow it, follow that description. That's, that's a great description of this character. Yeah. It's interesting too, because you're spending, I think probably certainly the majority but almost all of your time as this character behind the bench sitting down which means you're sort of robbed of one of the biggest tools in your toolkit as an actor which is your your whole body when you were preparing to play this character was that a consideration uh, for you at all no i knew exactly when I read it and said yes to it, that that's what I'd be doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a matter of fact, the one scene that's not in the courtroom in my chambers, I'm also behind my desk. So I did avoid wearing uh, no pants because a lot of people said, oh, you can wear those robes and you can wear sneakers and no pants. And (laughs) I couldn't do that. I couldn't. I I had to feel totally him. Yeah, yeah. It's a fantastic vocal performance um, in addition to the way you're able to make even the slightest turn of your head mean something. And when you choose to look up and look, not look up, you know, when you're sort of in your, in the documents that are on your desk, was there ever a moment with the, you know, when you're talking to the defendants or to uh, the attorneys where you thought it was 
more important to not be looking at them when you spoke with them? Well, that's a, that's actually a wonderful question. No one's ever asked it. But yes, absolutely, yes. There are uh, to just sit and stare at a, a defendant or at the lawyers <clears throat> is not interesting. You're not, all mm-hmm. then you, what you are is just a function of the story. But to try to create a man who is complicated, uh, so the audience is uh, able to see that he, when he does look, uh, reacts to something that. Um, that's uh, a wonderful way to play it. Most judges, you know, don't have the deliciousness that Aaron gave me. <laughs> so looking away, looking at my papers, I mean, at one point I thought, oh, why didn't I fall asleep at some point? Why didn't I? It, that, you know, things occur to you a year later. Yeah. Why didn't, why didn't my eyes just go heavy for a minute? But too late now. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. What was what was the sort of one thing that you that you look back and go, ah, I wish I had done that? Or is it a performance that when you see the film you and see the totality of everything, you're like, no, I think I think this was all very all in order. I um I don't ever I don't ever watch. I'm about to lose power, and we're about to come to the end. So. Nah. The last thing is I don't ever watch films that I'm in for years mm. and years, some of which I've never seen. But I watched this one about a month or so afterwards, and I felt that Aaron had done all of us really well. He he carved and put together a movie in which all of the major characters have their moments and their time. And when you get older you really know that the best thing about acting is to serve the writing Mm -hmm. and to uh, be a vessel. And that's what I hope I did. Um, And he he just gave me a great, great palette, you know. Yeah, no, it's a a fantastic part, great script, and it is a very, very memorable performance in a career full of them, if I I may say so. Very kind of you. Ah, thank you, sir. Um, and before we go, just what's next for you in this uh, crazy world? Um, I'm I'm writing my second book about ah. the marvelous people I've known in my in my career. So I'm at least I have that because um, for once I'm not the only actor out of work. That is a fantastic project to take on <laughs> this year. Yeah, it is. A pleasure to talk to you. Yes, a pleasure to talk to you, too. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you very much. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Aaron Sorkin and Dan Baer's interview with Frank Langella for The Trial of the Chicago 7, now currently streaming on Netflix. You have been listening to The Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we shall see you all next time.
Don't you know that you're a grown up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.